the majority of bores, um, if you start varying their collection schedule, it's actually a stress to the bore, and you'll have um, certain bores that'll uh, start to have bad semen quality um, just from varying their schedules. So think keep keeping them on once a week. Um, if you have older bores, a really common schedule today is a three and two schedule. And so what a three is, it's three times collected in two weeks. Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcia Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health and nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Darwin Reichs, and uh, we'll chat about the five biggest chains in bar studs in the last 25 years. So, how are you, Dr. Reichs? I'm well. Thanks for your time again. If you can share with us a little bit of your career so far, and, and also how you got involved in the swine industry, uh, and then we can get rolling to the topic. Uh, well, I grew up on a pig farm in, in Northeast Iowa and uh, went to Iowa State for animal science, um, graduated in 1990, and then went to vet school and graduated in 1994. Um, so I've been in practice uh, 26 years this week. Wow. And um, I was in a larger practice for 22 years, and I've been uh, uh, started uh, Reich's Veterinary Research and Consulting for about four years ago doing um, mostly the same thing for most of my career. Um, I've been working with uh, and managing boar studs for about 25 years. Uh, I've been working with air filtration since about uh, 2015, 2014, 2015. And um, I have a reference lab for uh, quality control for semen uh, analysis. Um, I'm in my 17th year doing that. And then I also have a research farm. I've done a lot of Small projects, mostly with boars, um, viral shedding, um, different diseases in boars, um, but also sows, pregnant sows, and uh, quite a bit with PERS, um, but also uh, PED, circovirus, Seneca virus. A lot of uh, different uh, diseases. Very nice, very, very nice career and uh, very unique too, right? Not many folks uh, specializing in boars, so... 
So that's great. Um, so for the last 25 years, um, Darwin, what are the five biggest chains in bore studs? Yeah, I would say um, I kind of boiled it down to five big changes. Um, the first being uh, control of PERS. Um, that was kind of a landmark innovation and uh, led to uh, control of other diseases. Um, secondly, I think ventilation. Uh, the filtration and air conditioning in particular, <clears throat> a lot of changes there with bores, bore studs. Um, the third is the quality control, the use of independent third-party labs to have kind of unbiased uh, information uh, with bacteria and uh, sperm counts and, and quality control. Um, I would say post-cervical um, artificial insemination. Uh, been two big waves of that, but uh, that certainly changed um, the way bore studs operate. And then the last, uh, EBV management. Um, I think some, you know, has been a, a big change um, with bore studs. Very good. Those are a lot of great areas to to dive on. So, PERS, uh, what are your comments on, on that over time? Well, with PERS, I think uh, it's, it was quite a change. A lot of people probably don't, maybe don't know even, um, that most bore studs were PERS positive um, up through about the year 2000, 2001. And then in other countries, um, even as, as recently as the last five to 10 years, some, some studs were operating as a, on a PERS positive status. Um, the main reason was that the source, in those days, the sourcing was positive. So uh, when a lot of the genetic companies here in North America um, some of the bigger companies did PERS eradications um, in the late 90s. Then we followed that with closures and eradications and bore studs. Then um, over the next few years, we started to see breaks um, in bore studs and, and shedding in the semen. So um, I did a couple big projects, 2003, 2004, and published those um, showing that uh, the current procedure of monitoring semen was not effective in identifying early um, detection. And uh, in the uh, second study, we used a different strain. We used a field strain. I believe that's one of the first studies um, where someone used a field strain. Um, up until that time, um, pretty much everyone would use kind of the same strain so then they could reference um, that same strain in their papers. So found that there was a lot of difference between strains and that serum uh, was the best sample for early detection. So uh, that led to a, a lot of other studies um, that I did looking at early detection for other, other agents. With a bore stud, if we don't detect it early and uh, the, the cows are out of the barn, so to speak, um, if you're already sending out virus, um, monitoring from a historical perspective really doesn't do you any good. Uh, for prevention. So I think that was a, a huge change. There's been a lot of cost, of course, in monitoring bore studs. Um, but uh, fortunately, I think uh, that problem of bore studs infecting sow farms through the semen um, has, has largely been resolved. Very nice. Um, we have um, in our audience over 25 countries that, that listen to, to our episodes, um, Dr. Reich. So if anyone that is listening has a first positive Warstead, can you walk us through a little bit, maybe just the highlights on the 
you know, how to eradicate, if that's okay? Yeah, the, the risk in operating a PERS positive or other uh, disease uh, positive that can transmit in the semen, which there, there's a number of uh, viral agents and some bacterial agents, the risk in doing so, especially with some of the viral agents like PERS, is the shedding is intermittent. And it's not, it's not really very closely tied with clinical signs. So um, I've done uh, quite a few different studies in the early phases um, with PERS virus. And quite often you see shedding in the semen um, about the same time or even uh, just before you see symptoms in the bores. So mm-hmm. that was a problem, a huge problem in the early 2000s was uh, at the, in those days we were testing semen or many people weren't testing at all. And all in the typical method for a stud closure was a bunch of bores off feed with fever. Well, we know now, of course, you know, everyone knows that it starts with one or two or three animals and, um, you know, spread slowly at first. And uh, I think quite often we were, you know, unknowingly uh, bore studs were sending out virus in the semen. So that, that's still the case today if, if there's a PERS positive bore stud. Very good. Um, if we go to the second um, big change there in bar studs, uh, so you mentioned ventilation. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think the first part of the changes with bar studs was driven largely from the purse shedding. And uh, we had to find a way to filter the air coming in. Um, there was a lot of good practical hands-on uh, biosecurity research kind of in that uh, 2000 to 2004, 2005 timeframe. And bore studs are pretty small uh, facilities, really easy and quick to adapt those things. And we'd still see uh, infections. And uh, another advent at that time was the sequencing. We really didn't have sequencing prior to that era. Also, we started to see area spread with PERS virus um, up until kind of that 2002 to 2004 time we really didn't see whole neighborhoods getting infected and then we had the sequencing so on some of these breaks we could um, trace it back to a neighbor look at the weather data and see that was um, 100% match upwind and so I got a number of those cases Um, so then we began to look at air filtration and uh, possibility of using a filter that was could be put in place and not require like high pressure fans like HEPA filters require. So that was a big change. Um, then later, I think the, uh, um, I had kind of started to think a lot about air conditioning. Um, if we could use air conditioning, we could run the same wintertime ventilation rate year round, have a lot less filters, and then have the added benefit of heat, heat stress in the summer. So there was only a few um, studs that were air conditioned up up until that time, um, largely it was they were set up like a house um, where air would go through a cold air return, and uh, or like a car when you're on max AC in your car, it's, it just recirculates and recools air that's already been cooled. Mm-hmm. Um, those systems did not hold up at all, so uh, we started to use systems that just use fresh air all the time, and that was a huge change for the industry. Um, to have some security going in the summer that the borders are going to make it through July, August, and September um, without massive heat stress losses. 
prior to that, we would often use, lose about 30%. Um, wouldn't, that wouldn't be uncommon to lose 30% of the bores uh, to bad semen quality. Not to death loss, because uh, they show uh, heat stress um, without you know, panting or death loss like that. Um, the testicle just can't handle the, the kind of heat um, that we're seeing, that we were seeing. So I think that was a huge change. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, heat stress in Barca, it's, uh, it's definitely a tough one. I mean, a few years ago, we did a, a nutrition study there with different vitamins to see if we could uh, minimize some of that. But uh, we were not able to find much there in that time. So it's, uh, yeah, ventilation, temperature is a big deal there. How about the next one, Dr. Reich's quality control in bar studs? How, how did that change over time? Well, the quality control um, up until about uh, within the last 25 years, much of the quality control was really just done at the bore stud with motility checks. And so the thought was um, you'd uh, distribute the semen and then at the bore stud or maybe even at the south arms also, you put it under a microscope. If it's alive, it's good to go. And so people would check motility for out to four or five days. But often um, there would be, you know, suboptimal fertility in different cases. And um, I want to credit, uh, at least in North America here, Gary Althaus, um, when he was at Illinois, set up this QC lab and kind of became kind of the gold standard. And uh, now um, Chris Custer and my lab, we, we um, cross-reference each other. And so that there'd be unbiased and um, that the labs would kind of police themselves. Prior to that time, if people had a fertility problem, um, they might send it in to the um, supplier of the extender, people that's selling in the extender. Um, or they might uh, you know, run it up to the um, university and the theriogenologist would take a look at it. So people are getting a lot of uh, variable um, information depending on you know, one's perspective and a lot of different types of reports. So kind of standardizing um, the, the reporting of that information. And uh, I think that, that had a big difference. What we found was that there was a lot of bacterial contamination. Um, my lab, I kind of geared up in 2003. Uh, the first couple of years there, we were seeing 20 to 25% of the samples coming in uh, with bacterial contamination. So uh, when wow. the farms would get those reports back they don't, they don't like that you know they don't like to see all that information mm-hmm. that people are competitive and so then you, you started to see people figure out solutions um, to bacterial contamination you know what type of extender collection technique um, we're collecting bores completely different today than we did 25 years ago um, 25 years ago there was a double glove method and we're you would uh, evacuate the prepuce and then extend the bore. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, enteric uh, bacteria coming through the ejaculates. Um, it was believed that um, raw semen was heavily contaminated. It's just not the case. Hmm. Um, now we do a three-glove technique, um, try to get free catch collections, and we get a lot of um, ejaculates that have un- undetectable amounts of bacteria nowadays. So it's been a huge a huge change with with that and i think that all started kind of from these um, third-party labs uh you mentioned free catch collection i think last time i collected a bar was 2009 or something so can you just explain that to me maybe it's 
I don't know if it's the same thing or different. So, yep, it's something um, uh, Chris Custer and I had worked on a lot. And the, the idea is uh, you extend the bore with a paper towel in hand um, to kind of dry off the penis. Um, then you uh, there's a technique where you uh, roll that one off and re-grab with a clean glove, and then you uh, you have really good traction. And in most cases, you're able to peel your fingers away and have the semen go directly from the from the boar's penis into the cup without running across the glove, mm-hmm. um, without having any prepuceal fluids um, in your hand. And even with the automated collection, uh, we're able to modify that technique um, to try to get the semen directly from the urethra into the cup. That's really made a huge difference. Even if we have antibiotics or other uh, control measures in place in the extenders, um, you know, a lot of these bacteria produce toxins, even if they're killed by the antibiotics, they still can come with toxins. So that's really made a big difference um, in the quality of semen today versus 25 years ago. Super interesting. Very nice. Anything else on quality control before we go to the next one? Yeah, one more thing with the quality control um, also has been the uh, toxicities. We really didn't uh, 25 years ago think about um, various toxins that could be exposed to the semen. The only really toxin that was uh, known at the time was um, the use of latex gloves. Sometimes, and a lot of people have heard about that. Um, in reality, there's latex gloves that aren't are not toxic, hmm. and there's vinyl gloves and nitro gloves that can be toxic. Hmm. So that was some of the early eye opener. Um, that even from lot to lot, there can be variation. Um, that led to some of uh, discovery of, of toxins in the uh, storage containers for the semen themselves. Um, the packaging, such as the, the blister uh, package, um, if there's toxins in the adhesives, it could potentially leach through the plastic and affect the, the DNA of the sperm. Um, if there's cleaners used in the lab and there's residues, someone gets it on their finger, um, then it ends up in the semen. Um, those residues can cause um, acrosome damage and cell membrane damage that wouldn't be picked up on motility checks. So that's really been an advent in the last, I would say maybe five to six years, is um, looking for different toxins and their effects. Mm-hmm. And that We didn't have any idea about that 25 years ago. Very interesting. So what was that big problem about five years ago we had in the industry? Was that diluent related? Uh, extended related or what is that problem if you can just walk us through it and what was learned from that well there's been a number of toxicity um, issues that there's probably three that are uh, most widely known um, two of them involve toxicity, uh, toxicity of plastics and uh, there was uh, chemicals in one case a chemical called badge um, that was found um, doing uh, liquid gas mass spec and that altered the sperm in a way that did not affect the motility, but affected the fertility. Um, So there's been a couple of cases of that. Um, There's also been a a situation with extenders. In in all cases, these were inadvertent um, ingredient changes or uh, use of a slight change in one chemical that was used um, that ultimately ended up affecting the the total born and farrowing rates. Yeah, very interesting. And that's one thing about the reproduction studies sometimes, right, is that a lot of times uh, research labs don't have the ability or the time or resource to follow through to see what happens at total level, fertility, farrowing rate, right? That's right, yeah. 
you know, most motility in those things, morphology. So that's, that's interesting. Do you see a trend or some of the labs trying to go all the way through with that or it's still very tough? It, it's, it's a challenge. Um, it's, you know, ideally we do um, uh, single sire matings and on every product, you know, exposure to each product and take it all the way through to farrowing. But uh, that's kind of a su supply chain challenge. You got, uh, you know, four months um, to get the results. Um, so there's been uh, a lot of attempts, you know, to find different tests where we could do the same thing by looking at tests, um, acrosomes, um, hypoosmotic swelling tests, um, different types of tests like that where uh, we can catch most things. But in order to catch every possible difference, we'd need large numbers and single sire matings and, um, you know, just continuous ongoing uh, research trials. So okay. I think what's kind of the industry has gone to now is sort of backing up to the um, individual ingredient suppliers and trying to, um, you know, look at the quality control measures they have in place um, that go into some of these ingredients. The three glove method, a lot of that is to avoid the potential contamination um, with gloves, because we see a lot of variation with the collection gloves and materials. Sometimes we have lots come through that cause a lot of damage to the sperm. And so if we can just have the semen go directly um, from the penis into the, into the collection bag um, and get it processed up, that, that avoids that whole step. I think there's gonna be a lot more work done in the future also with um, different types of toxins, bacterial toxins, uh, mycotoxins, um, that we frankly, we just don't know a lot about today. Very good. So next one is, um, what are the changes on post-cervical artificial insemination? Yeah, that's post-cervical artificial insemination um, really is not a new uh, technology. There was a lot of uh, buzz about this in the late 90s mm -hmm. and uh, different experiments. There was kind of a landmark um, experiment <clears throat> out of uh, England uh, showing you could go down to lower counts. There was a lot of work in Spain uh, looking at post-cervical or deep uterine, it was called at the time. Um, then there was catheters that were even longer that would, would go way, well up into the uterine horn, getting close to the site of fertilization. So there was a lot of work in those days and, and quite a bit of um, field studies that went on. The results were really variable and that was um, caused a lot of frustration. Uh, there'd be these massive success stories and then there'd be other failures. So uh, while some, you know, some areas in the world adapted um, these techniques, um, there was a lot, of, a lot of hesitation. Well, what really changed that was this idea where you would heat check sows and then come back, say, a half hour to 45 minutes later and inseminate without the boar present. Because um, mm -hmm. in those early studies, and, and I did some myself, um, you know, we typically would see about a 90% passage rate through the cervix. And, you know, frankly, that just wasn't good enough. So you had one out of every 10 sows, you know, someone standing there with this catheter, frustrated, they can't pass it through the cervix. And uh, so this, this concept of um, heat checking and coming back later uh, to inseminate, um, that really made a huge difference. Uh, so that, that really was a game changer. Uh, once that started to get to per perfected, you know, lining sows up in a row, and uh, no bore present and, and inseminating was really counterintuitive to everything we'd all been taught. Hmm. Yes. So that made a big difference. 
So uh, also, I think that change uh, sort of put an end to these ideas of embryo transfer and frozen semen. Uh, there was still a lot of hope at the time about embryo transfer, frozen semen uh, for genetic improvement. But once the uh, post-cervical insemination kind of got mastered, mm. um, those things, for, for the most part, have, have kind of gone by the wayside. Okay. Is, do you have a good idea of the percentage of, say, the U.S. industry, you know, how much are, are using post-cervical? Um, I don't have a real good idea. Um, every four years at our Midwest Boar Stud Managers Conference, we try to, uh, the group kind of comes up with an estimate. Um, my guess right now is it's somewhere in the 50% okay. um, adaption rate uh, because a lot of people, most people are not using it on gills. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. A little bit difficult to get the exact same results uh, for some systems on, on gilts for whatever reason. You know, they have a much smaller cervix, a much tighter cervix, and uh, this requires a lot more patience mm -hmm. in, in time. So, um, but uh, the reduced volume, you know, this led to the reduced volume, and that's been the big thing um, that has really affected the bore stud is a lot of people are using somewhere between half and, and two-thirds. Um, I like to see kind of a 60 to 70% uh, volume. Um, just as a as for security and insurance, but you know that dramatically reduces the number of bores needed in the bore stud. So, you know the whole infrastructure of the bore stud industry, um, and the timing has kind of worked out well. A lot of bore studs that were built in the early and mid '90s, um, the facilities are you know starting to show their age, and um, that's allowed you know especially some bigger systems to you know, just kind of mothball some of those facilities and service the same number of sows with a lot less bores and with a lot higher genetic value as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's huge, right? Uh, do we know, do you have a, uh, an idea of how much, say, yeah, how much the genetic, and I guess that comes to your next point maybe, is the um, estimated breeding value management. What are the changes there and also how the post-cervical kind of influenced that? Yeah, so that was my fifth change um, that, that I think has really been, uh, uh, when I look back or, over the last 25 years, um, you know, in, in the mid-90s there, kind of when I got going, uh, people would buy bores. Um, if there was any uh, categorization of bores, uh, some companies would sell you, say, a top 10 bore versus a regular bore, um, AI bore. So if you paid a little more, you could get a bore in the top 10 off test. Um, otherwise, you got a bore in the 10 to 50th percentile was kind of a common way of doing it. Um, once you got the bore, that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you knew that you paid for a top 10 bore, but you had no idea um, how that bore compared to new bores coming off test. So a lot of people, what a lot of people did was they, um, in the early days, 50% replacement rate was really common. So very similar to a sow farm. And what they did was you brought in a new group of 20 boars, and you had a couple of deads. 18 went out the backside. You picked the 18 oldest boars, and that's what you did. Credit some of the genetic companies, um, you know, for starting to share um, the indexes, not only to share the index as the boars come off test, but to maintain um, that information in a global database and keep the indexes updated. Um, that's just had a huge impact on the industry. You know, now you go to a boar stud, there's a lot wider range in age 
than there was 25 years ago. Because you might have a bore that comes in, you know, he may come in with a 160 index, well, he's going to be around for quite a while. Um, a guy that comes in at a 105, he's not going to be around that long. And that's the way it should be. Um, the, the highest index bores on that day you know, are the ones that should be kept in the bore stud regardless of age, regardless of semen output. You know, as long as they have decent semen quality and acceptable structure, um, that makes a whole lot more sense. That's really revolutionized how we're actually managing the bore studs. Um, we're um, you know, setting up collection schedules with the highest um, bore indexes that are scheduled, and then we have a reserve population of the low index bores, um, the bores that are kind of on deck to go to go out on the next cull truck. So that that really changed a lot. It's amazing. Um, I was going to ask you about what what is typical today. Well, I guess one is the replacement rate. What do you see today, average? I would say a, a normal um, commercial terminal bores uh, typically are running in the 70 to 80 percent uh, replacement rate, and that's uh, that's also a related change. Uh, in the early 2000s, um, there was a lot of drive for really high replacement rates. A lot of studs were running 100 100 percent replacement rate or more. Um, what happened was uh, we really didn't make that many pigs out of those high indexing bores because um, the high indexing bores are typically the youngest bores, the ones coming in. Um, but as we've uh, bred bores to be more and more efficient, um, the, their maturation is, is later. Mm. Um, so you might get bores delivered at say six months of age. They really don't make any significant number of pigs till say 11 or 12 months of age because they're not producing much sperm. And the sperm they're producing isn't of very good quality. So usually it um, it's not even acceptable as it goes through the lab at the bore stud. So there was kind of a balance uh, put in place, I would say kind of late 2000s there, and where people started to look at, you know, how many pigs are actually being made and what's the ideal balance? And things got dialed back there to a more manageable level um, where we actually can make a lot of pigs out of a high indexing bore and, and not just be, you know, forcing the use of young boars that don't really produce much sperm anyway. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yes. Um, another question I have is, what's a recommended frequency to today? Once a week or twice, or what's the recommended? Yeah, typically we like to, I like to see bores collected once a week, every week on the exact same day, um, without any alteration. Um, there's been you know quite a bit of work in the past. Billy Flowers did a lot of the early work, um, showing that you know the majority, not all, but the majority of bores. Um, if you start varying their collection schedule, um, it's actually a stress to the bore, and you'll have um, certain bores that'll uh, start to have bad semen quality um, just from varying their schedules. So think keep keeping them on once a week. Um, if you have older bores, a really common schedule today is a three and two schedule. And so what a three is, it's three times collected in two weeks. So that would be um, like week one, they'd be collected Monday, Friday. Week two would be Wednesday. And Monday, Friday, then Wednesday, and that gives you a consistent four or five day um, rest period. Mm -hmm. Not very many boar studs today are collecting twice a week. Um, that was more common in the 90s uh, when we were running 50% replacement rate. You might have some, you know, boars that were say, you know, two to three years of age, 
And then oftentimes people would call out the lower producing boars. So you'd have, you know, three-year-old boar producing 35, 40 doses of collection and uh, going to twice a week was no problem. But I think today that's a lot less common. Um, there's a lot more Duroc boars in the population in the last couple of years. And uh, the Duroc boars, and, you know, anytime we have purebred boars, they're just a lot more sensitive to stresses of uh, collection schedule changes of too frequent of collection or of letting them go without collecting them. So um, we do need to see them on a consistent schedule. Very interesting. Uh, anything else on this topic uh, before we move to the three questions, Dr. Rex, that we ask every guest? I think we covered, covered most of it. Very good. A lot of great knowledge there and experience for the last 25 years. It is time to our famous three. The truth is precision swine production is not the future, it is the present. Every pig is the intelligent pig health platform. It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20-minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So the first uh, question is, what's your favorite pig-related book? Well, one of the books that really had an impact on me early, early in my career and, and uh, while I was in vet school that came out is uh, Vet Clinics of North America. Um, re it's, uh, there's a swine reproduction um, edition from the early 90s. And uh, every once in a while, I go back and skim through that. And it's, it's incredible how a lot of that stuff is still in place today, fundamentals are still in place. So I sort of like looking back at uh, old publications and um, enjoy, you know, finding um, some of the uh, foreshadowing and, and um, insight that people had back then that was really ahead of their time. That's super cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was not familiar with that book. What is the favorite book that is not related to pig for you? One of the books uh, that I really like is, it was called the secret race. Uh, Tyler Hamilton was a, uh, Cyclist, um, I'm a passionate uh, cyclist, and that's cool. Uh, that was sort of an unmasking of the uh, uh, ethical problems in, in the uh, road cycling, and uh, where someone kind of came clean and told the truth, and and had very high standards of ethics, and um, I think it's a really interesting book. Very nice. Do, do you still cycle? I do. Yes. Nice. That's cool. I used to. I need to get back to it. Uh, my longest one's being 112 miles and a lot of sweat. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a therapy for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then the last one is, uh, what do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those who are not? Um, the thing I think sets uh, you know, successful professionals is that they're problem solvers. And they, they go about solving problems in an objective and scientific method. You know, scientific matter and uh, are able to block out, you know, some of the em emotional or other types of, you know, subjective consequences and find a, you know, find the objective. What's the true answer? You might not be able to get to the true answer uh, or implement based off the true answer, but to, you know, to find, um, find a solution to the problem. And um, that's what I've tried to do throughout my career is, you know, look at different things that cause people um, uh, problems or that cause production problems and then, you know, dig in 
and trying to try to find the true source of the problem and, and, and a solution. Very nice. Problem solvers. Very cool. Dr. Reichs. Well, I appreciate your time. This has been great. Um, like I say, very niche section there of the swine industry that's, that's, uh, we certainly deserve more research in that area. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Hey everyone, please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we even gonna have some controversial topics of the global swine industry. So you can leverage that knowledge in your day today. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our waitlist. We'll talk soon.